Mark 12, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for reading that to us. Let's pray with um, that account from the Bible open before us. And as we've already pondered tonight, Lord Jesus, there is no one to whom we should rather turn than you. And we don't want to turn away from you without listening to your words carefully tonight. You have words that uh, we can't really hear anything like anywhere else. And we pray that we'd find them to be eternal life for us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Just in case you hadn't worked out, we've had a series over the last little bit looking at uh, people that Jesus had met. And I've enjoyed really not just meeting the people that Jesus met, but having the testimonies. So we've had first century and 21st century encounters with Jesus bit by bit. And each of them has told us a little bit more I hope you've had the same experience about Jesus, not just about the various people that he has met. It's one of the nice things about the accounts in the Gospels that we have. Uh, For tonight's encounter, because we're at Palm Sunday in in the church's calendar, heading towards Easter, we are looking at one of the encounters taken from the last week of Jesus's life, with the shadow of the cross falling over his existence And we're looking at his meeting with a lawyer in Jerusalem. I wasn't quite sure. I I didn't sort of quiz Monica about this as to whether the 21st century encounter that we had was because we were looking at a lawyer and we had an ex-lawyer in Edward Keane telling us about his meeting with Christ. I had a conversation with David Brock this morning and he noted that I had entitled tonight's talk Jesus Meets a Lawyer. And he, he sort of got me on one side. He said he he wanted to be absolutely clear that a lawyer today was different from the teachers of the law back then. So I've got to be a bit careful what I say with a former church warden and a current curate with a background in the legal profession. We all know that lawyers today are often the butt of humor. They are the bad guys in jokes like this. A man walked into a bar with his alligator and asked the bartender, 
Do you serve lawyers here? Sure do, replied the bartender. Good, said the man. Give me a beer and I'll have a lawyer for my alligator. I thought that was quite good. The joke prob- <laughs> probably works even better if you change lawyer for insurance agent or something like that. Lawyers, anyway, aren't always respected in our day, but they were respected in Jesus' day. The correct title was Teacher of the Law. And they were lawyers in the sense that God's law was the law of the land in Israel, even though the occupying Roman government also had power. But it's a different category in some ways. It was just me being clever with the title, I think. Banish from your minds the coverage of Trump's extramarital affairs or other modern-day legal scenes that might come to mind as we think about this guy. This guy was respected. And even though the teachers of the law were opposed to Jesus, this man was taken seriously and treated with love and respect by Jesus, despite the fact that the shadow of death is falling over his life by now. I'm not sure anyone particularly but Jesus really knew that he was only days away from death at this stage, but he did know. So in that situation, did he soft-pedal the different encounters he had with people as the cross got closer? Uh Uh-uh, he did not. He deals lovingly and clearly with this teacher of the law. But there is a telling end to our scene. I wonder if you spotted it in the reading we had. In verse 34, it's striking, isn't it? That last little bit of the sentence. From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So from Palm Sunday onwards in his life, people think that they are judging Jesus. But in fact, the table gets turned the whole time. He is judging them. He may be meeting a lawyer in our section today. But in fact, Jesus is setting himself up as the true teacher of the law. He has the last word on the teacher of the law. striking how you won't let the teacher of the law have the last word because that was their profession. You'd expect them to. Even though the comment this man makes to Jesus is wise, Jesus has the last word on him because he's the true teacher of the law. And the account, therefore, raises for us the question, will I have him as my teacher? Will I willingly let him have authority over me? Let me read from verse 28 again. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. So that's a little clue. He wasn't predisposed to rubbish Jesus. He could tell a good answer when he heard one. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus sees it as a good question, and one which can profitably be answered. And as the true teacher of the law, he gives us various priorities in his answer that we're really to honour the law in the way we should. We should follow these three things. I'm trying to sort of over-systematise it maybe, but first and foremost... There's got to be a right response to God himself. So in verse 29, he says, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
I suppose it would be very simple to go straight on to talk about love for God in Jesus' answer. But the actual preface to the command is really important. Because before the law calls on us to do anything, it tells us first to hear and effectively to understand with our minds. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's actually really important. Because to talk about love without being specific about the object of love, the one to whom our love is going to be directed, it's always going to be a bit vague. It's going to lack definition. Uh, The particular truth about God that Jesus says is vital for us to hear and understand is the uniqueness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that was nothing new. It went right back to the time when the Israelites were on the threshold of the promised land. Moses was about to die. He's delivering his farewell sermon. And he says, look, there's only one God, your God, the Lord who rescued you from Egypt. Don't be fickle with him. Don't make treaties or truces with any other so-called gods. God can't share the honors with idols, which are just human inventions. He is the one true God. And with that truth in place, the response required is obvious. If he's the universal Lord, then he's got to have our undivided loyalty. I've got to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I, I personally don't think that the precise wording, heart, soul, mind, and strength, is intended to describe four different compartments of the human constitution which together make up the whole, what Moses was doing and what Jesus was therefore emphasizing was really to add extra phrases to stress the thoroughness and completeness of our love for God. He's piling it on for emphasis. And the really important word in one sense is the little one which comes four times. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And to love God with the totality of my being. A love that isn't happy with just a partial response, a fraction of my time, even a majority of my time, that wouldn't be enough. There is one Lord, and he deserves, in the words of the hymn, my soul, my life, my all. Not just church, or a few minutes at the start of the day, the religious corner of my life, but my working life, my family life, the lot, the boardroom and the bedroom, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What's challenging is that Jesus doesn't answer with a commandment which relates to our behavior in some measurable sort of tick-the-box way, something we do or don't do. Initially, it calls on us to respond to God, doesn't it? Not to obey a rule, but to love a person which I suppose is really important to grasp. Often we shrink our relationship with the Almighty down to commands that we need to obey. But nobody will actually obey God who doesn't love him first. We'll never do what he commands from the heart unless we know him as one worthy of our love. So this command takes us beyond the law to the lawgiver himself. It asks us, what do we think of him? Do we love him? Have we made a right response to God himself? 
Let's move on to the next aspect of the Old Testament law which Jesus highlights. A right response to our neighbour. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? And he brings two commands. Two for the price of one, as it were. He brings them together from different bits of the Old Testament. He's not content with saying, love God with every atom of your being. He says in verse 31, the second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. Two replies to one question. Because, of course, those two mustn't ever be separated. We can't neglect our human neighbour by saying, I'm sorry, I'm much too busy loving God. Real love for God will always send us out in love for our neighbour. As our morning series in 1 John has put it repeatedly, if anybody says, I love God, yet hates his neighbour, they're a liar. And by the same token, it isn't enough to say that by loving our neighbour, we are actually loving God, even if we don't talk that way at all. That's how many secular people will put it, even if they wouldn't normally talk of loving God. Never mind worshipping God, they might say. Altruism and charity, that's what really matters. No, says the Bible. No, says Jesus. Both are necessary. And a genuine love for God will mean that we love our neighbour more deeply. Now, Jesus is speaking to us as the sinners we in fact are. He's saying, built into your makeup is a sort of me-first mentality. We love ourselves. I know there's a debate to be had about self-esteem, and uh, a lack of self-esteem cripples a lot of people in life. But the Bible addresses that sort of issue elsewhere. It's not talking about that specifically here. He's saying we do naturally prioritize ourselves. So give to your neighbor the love you naturally give to yourself. The order that comes naturally to us is me first, others second, God third, if at all. And Jesus calls on us simply to reverse that. God first, others second, and then self will fall into its proper place. And the lawyer agrees. Verse 32, well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, a so-called relationship with God without loving my neighbor is worthless. Both belong together. Well, let me ask then, apropos that second focus, love of our neighbor. I wonder, do you have a standard of treatment that you require from other people, but which you're unwilling to give back to them? I don't know what the examples might be that would uh, help you think it through. I was trying to think what I like. I get very frustrated when people don't give me a quick reply to an email that I think is important. If I can compute that way, I mustn't keep my neighbor waiting when they get in touch with me. Another silly one. I hate it when the motorways are damp and salty after the sort of cold weather we've had and grimy and then... A car overtakes and cuts in quickly and just cakes my windscreen in filth. I don't like that. Well, I must take care not to do that to my neighbor then. But 
It was just interesting thinking it through. Instinctively, I tend to think negatively here. I don't like people when they do that to me, so I mustn't do that to them. It's sort of negative. Actually, the command is much more demanding because it's positive. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Our sinful nature would have us believe that if we only manage to avoid doing certain wrong actions, committing certain sins, God will be happy. But there are not only sins of commission for me to worry about, there are sins of omission, where I omit to do something good or loving or warm that's in my power to do, simply because I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. And very stretching, as you look at Jesus, the true teacher of the law, as he engages with this expert in the law, how that wisdom of heaven is operating here. I want to consider just one final aspect, therefore, of our response to the Old Testament law in a second by focusing again on Jesus. But let's just pause a moment. Let's put a right response to God and a right response to my neighbor together for a moment before we uh, look at that last point. Let me quote from a man called James Harvey. He was an ordained clergyman, actually before he became a real Christian in the 18th century. He was religious, he was dutiful, but he was not a changed, converted follower of Christ. Just listen to him as he describes how the penny dropped for him. The two great commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, made the first awakening impression on my heart. Amazing, thought I. Are these commands of God as obligatory as the prohibition of adultery or the observation of the Sabbath? Then has my whole life been a continued act of disobedience, not a day nor an hour in which I performed my duty. See what he's saying? He hadn't loved God. He hadn't loved his neighbor. And that demanding standard humbled him. I wonder if that penny has dropped in that sort of way for us here. Not a day nor an hour when I've loved God and neighbor as I should. If there's no greater commandment, then in one sense, by definition, there's no greater sinner than me. So I've got to come outside the Old Testament law if there's to be any hope for me. A right response to God and to our neighbor, that isn't enough. One final point, there's got to be a right response to King Jesus as well. And the teacher of the law in our story hadn't got to that point yet, it seems. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Maybe that was because they realized how high the stakes were. If we're driving somewhere and we ask for directions and someone says, You're not far. I suppose in one sense that's encouraging, isn't it? Because you're nearly there. But it's also disturbing. You know you've not yet arrived if someone says that to you. So Jesus' reply is 
encouraging and thought-provoking. This man has understood the law. He's applauded Jesus' summary of God's requirements. And yet, yet he's got a blind spot, hasn't he? He hasn't recognized that the very one he's speaking to is God's special king and the true teacher of the law. It's no accident that Jesus has such a perfect grasp of the Old Testament law. He's not just another teacher. He is God's supreme governor. He's the king of God's kingdom. So implies Jesus, if you can't see that I'm the king, however close you've come, you are not yet in the kingdom. And I think that's a fitting conclusion for us. Some of us here, maybe this fits us, maybe you aren't far from the kingdom of God. You've heard lots about the Bible that persuades you that this is life as it ought to be lived. People can tell that this book is important, maybe. But actually, that's not enough if you haven't yet responded to King Jesus. The only person who by his death paid for our failure to live to this standard and who by his Holy Spirit can change our hearts and begin that process of transformation. So as I said, there is tension in the air in this encounter with Jesus. No one dares ask any questions. Did they have a sense that it was a crunch time and that people might have come close walking and talking with Jesus but just not quite giving him their lives. The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, told a story about one of the great shipwrecks of his day. He was a Victorian preacher. This shipwreck happened in 1859 when this boat called the Royal Charter was coming back all the way from Australia and coming into Liverpool. And it got broken to bits with less than 100 miles to go on the cliffy coast of Anglesey with amazing loss of life, 450 lives lost. There was a woman in Blackpool who had telegraphed the boat before the storm and even got as far as laying the table for her husband's evening meal before she heard by messenger that he was one of the poor souls that had drowned. So you get the picture, this boat's come thousands and thousands of miles, the last hundred miles of this terrible shipwreck, and she was ready for his return, and he died in that tragic accident. A friend commented that her grief was so acute that she couldn't cry. She just wrung her hands, saying, so near home and yet lost. Terrible anguish. But you know, it's even worse for somebody to be near the kingdom you like at the gate of heaven almost in but never quite to enter it and then it could end this way couldn't it end up shut out shipwrecked for life and eternity and condemned by Jesus the judge so the call of this passage as Jesus talks to this lawyer that there's no doubt that he loved him is don't be content merely to stand nearby spiritually, like the lawyer friend, in church, giving the thumbs up to Bible teaching, but never actually coming personally to Jesus and asking him to save you 
and to rule your life. And you probably know that if that describes you, maybe other people let you think that you're a Christian already. They see you in church, they assume that that makes you a Christian. Well, Jesus sees into our hearts and he has spiritual x-ray vision in the way that none of us here do. Would he tell somebody here, you're not far from the kingdom, I wonder. Not far from the kingdom, but you're not yet in the kingdom. And the call of this passage, it seems to me, is just to warn us against a tragedy of coming close, yet still being outside the kingdom. So I want to encourage you to clinch it this Easter and to ask Jesus Christ to be your king and your saviour, or to rejoice that you have already done so and that you are home and in the kingdom with him. I have a, a booklet. I'd always be happy to give this booklet that explains how you can come to Christ and ask him to be your king and your saviour. Take it away and ponder it over the course of the week. There are more of these obviously at the back that I'd happily put in your hands as we close. Alistair.